0: In this True Crime Law and Order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals. One who researches the actual crime, and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Wow. My clap was very weak that time. Mine was extremely loud. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you are currently in the closet. I'm back in the closet, folks. (laughs) I, uh... You're in New Jersey.
1: I'm in New Jersey. I'm in our new our new unit, our new place. And I'm literally in the closet because, as I was telling N before recording, and as you probably picked up on by now, the audio on my end is a little different. <laughs> Just think yeah. of it like, you know, when COVID happened and a lot of podcasts started recording back at home again. Just like that. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> furniture We're, definitely
1: uh... muffles sound, i found. And uh, when we get that stuff, that furniture stuff... We'll be back. We'll be back to the, our normal, uh, our normal sound quality on my end, at least.
0: Yes, I feel like so. I'm currently in my office in Santa Barbara at my home office in Santa Barbara, and and I currently am surrounded by Matt's boxes because <laughs> the movers are coming for that tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's definitely much less echoey in here with all of the boxes. I bet.
1: I know. I remember how so, we left it, and it's like there's the space for you to be on your computer, and that's kind of. <laughs> that's kind, that's of, kind it. of it <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for for being such a good friend and for housing our stuff for us in the meantime
0: no problem how are you doing three hours in the future oh i know it's nighttime here it's dark we just had dinner is it spooky it's spooky in this <laughs> closet a little bit i gotta be honest i i mean yeah um now i remember why i came out <laughs> <laughs> One of many have you, en- have you enjoyed the cross-country adventure? Um, I bet you're tired, huh? Oh, my God, I'm tired. I
1: mean, now I'm I'm sort of back to fighting <laughs> shape, <laughs> whatever the phrase <laughs> is. Um, uh-huh. the, the trip was long. I made the same trip. Last time it took, like, two weeks. This was, like, you know, five or six days. But I mm-hmm. will tell you, I mean, this time we had two dogs, and so... That was uh, a journey, thank and thank I was gonna say God for the sedatives that the vet prescribed for the younger one. Oh
0: boy, yeah. That was I bet, are you gonna changer. like refill those and just make that part of your daily routine? <laughs> I mean it's
1: tempting. It's tempting. We have used them a few times since we've been here, I have to be honest, because uh she gave us like a thirty month a thirty day supply because they were so cheap. Oh nice. Uh but since we've moved, we were staying at our friend's house who have a male dog who is like, around Neville's age, so he's, like, three, and he's neutered and everything, but mm-hmm. boy, Harrison is not neutered, and he is in... He just got real horny, real fast, and did mm. not did not <laughs> let up the last few days we were staying at their place before this unit was ready. My lord, I've never seen Harrison so aggressive of... I, I was like, you... It is 2021, young man, and you need to learn about consent. Ask for consent.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you need to learn how to take the answer no. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a very important question for you. I can't wait. Have you ever had overnight oats? Yes, I love overnight oats. Okay, so how do you make them? You take
1: oatmeal. Uh um, You put it in a, like, mason jar with, I think almond milk or some kind of milk, Uh and you, you know, add flavors to it, Uh and you let it sit in the fridge and become oats, like edible oats. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Are you going to try to compare this to grape nuts?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I literally for weeks have been thinking it is the exact same process for grape nuts. Okay. Okay.
1: Here's the difference, though. Uh Overnight oats implies that the process is for like an overnight an overnight experience. So you you do it full well knowing you're you're like making a concoction. Grape nest is supposed to be a cereal which comes out of the box into a bowl and shortly thereafter into your mouth. And it should not require a soaking to make it not only edible, not not only like delicious, but edible (laughs) at all. And it certainly I would never say my overnight oats are tender. Tender.
0: <laughs> that was really the, well, the biggest offense of the whole grape nut situation was that the really tis- tender. <laughs> that that was the problem. Like you're right. Steak. <laughs> I my brother texted me when it when he was listening to the episode where we talked about grape nuts mm-hmm. and he he said, All I could think about when you were talking about grape nuts was it's like chewing a mountain somebody shot with a freeze ray. <laughs> <laughs> Ew. So, there, Grape Nuts, there's your new slogan. <laughs> well, if they ever update their box, they can add that to the to the list. Did you see this? Someone... No, why mess with perfection?
1: <laughs> did you see someone commented about the Grape Nuts on our Instagram today? <gasps> no! Oh, what did they say? It was for the Cool Story Instagram, but it's also relevant oh, okay. here. Um, let me read it to you. I have it, I have it right here. So, I posted on um, Cool Story today for our episode from yesterday, and... <laughs> Uh, friend of the podcast, friend of our other podcast. I think she, I think they might listen to this one as well, if I'm not mistaken. But, um, let's see. It's nerdy nitty on Instagram.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. And she said, um, I can't wait for you all to dig deeper into my favorite book in the series. Also, N, I totally have your back regarding the, and this is with um, asterisks around it, proper way to eat grape nuts. (laughs)
0: Ugh, Thank you, Nerdy (laughs) Nitty. I am not alone in this world. I told them back that you need all the allies you can get on this one. (laughs) (laughs) You're so nasty. (laughs) I hate you. Okay, well, Matt and I have we keep like a a shared notes document of things we want to talk about on the podcast. And (laughs) since it's been a couple weeks since we recorded while while Matt was traveling across the country, we have about 75 (laughs) items on that list, but we're gonna spare you and just pick a couple of them. So I have just two recommendations that I'll say really quickly. Okay. One is I watched a show on Netflix called Never Have I Ever. Okay. Have you heard of it? I've seen the th- thumbnail, but I know nothing about it. I thought it was cute. It's um, Mindy Kaling is I, like executive producer or something. And it's it's kind of like loosely based on her childhood. Oh, I love that. I love her. Yeah, yeah. So I I think it was worth watching. It was entertaining. There's going to be a second season, I think. So uh, go watch that. love it. And then my second recommendation is an HBO show called F-Boy Island. Have you heard of that?
1: I have. And I've been eagerly looking forward to watching it
0: oh let me tell you it uh, i had my jaw hit the floor multiple times multiple times on that show it's the premise is it's kind of like the bachelor but like there's three women who are all looking for love and 24 men 12 of them are like self-defined nice guys and 12 of them Mm -hmm. are self-professed f-boys and it is just unreal and so ridiculous, and it's hosted by Nikki Glaser. She's a comedian and Oh, I like her. I know exactly. I thought who it is. she was great. I know. Who okay. She, is. Yeah, yeah. she was a really great host for the show. Um, it's great because she's a comedian and she's like being a comedian while also being a host, mm-hmm. but she's like does the typical like bachelor things of like twelve men stand in front of you, or like that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But then she also has all of these lines that like make fun of the show and the contestants all while it's happening. Oh,
1: like Love Island
0: yes kind of a lot like love Island. i like that that's the kind of host i need to
1: start doing for most shows like
0: that i totally agree nice all right i'm gonna i'm gonna pause my list there because i want to save some stuff for next time okay okay
1: um my only okay i have two I, i know which ones i'm gonna pick okay first of all are you up to date on potomac
0: I was about to say absolutely, but I I missed a couple of weeks and was playing catch-up, and I watched one last night, and I can't remember if it's the current one or the week before. Did you see Karen's commercial? Yes, okay. I did, where she's, like, sliding down a slide and pretending to film in a different city. Yes,
1: in her commercial. So, on The Real Housewives of Potomac, Karen, one of the housewives, does a commercial for her, her, her county, sorry, county, and... She's like, you know, just trying to f- sh- highlight the great things about her town. And at the end of it, she's talking about the peanuts <laughs> that they make in yeah. Surrey. Okay. And then she says to the camera in her talking head, very seriously, you know, a lot of people don't know that peanuts come in a husk, a shell, if you will. A lot of people don't know that. Who doesn't know that peanuts come in a peanut shell?
0: I can't imagine that anybody... <gasps> over the age of four years old doesn't know that. I think when you're younger and you don't really know better about peanuts yet, you probably only know about the shell. (laughs) Because every cartoon peanut is a shell. Mr. Uh Peanut is a peanut shell. Mr. Peanut is a peanut shell, you're right. Who does not know? And she goes, it's a
1: husk, a shell, if you will. Thank you, Karen, (laughs) for the peanut talk. It it hasn't been bothering me.
0: (laughs) I could not wait to just share that moment with you (laughs) since it happened. (laughs) Um... I just want to also, while you're on the topic of Karen, um, also, it's Surrey County, and she periodically pronounces it about seven different ways at mm-hmm. any given moment. Sometimes it's Surrey, sometimes it's Sari, sometimes it's Sari, like it's, it, yeah, Siri. It's many different things, but she's never, like, repeating her pronunci- pronunciation of it correctly.
1: Um, and then the other thing... Um... What will I use today? Oh, you know what I want to share with you today? This isn't even on the list. What? It's just something that came up that I found in your... Did you finish listening to the second season of To Live and Die in LA now that it's finished? I, ha-
0: I haven't, no.
1: Okay, I won't ruin anything for you. Um, okay. It's about the host, because I know you've had some mm. opinions of the host. I have, yes. Okay, so now, after listening to the very last episode... He does something in the last episode that I f- I just felt was very like self serving. Mm, what and a I was shock! Like, wow, this is really kind of kind of what Em was talking about, I think. So I started to do like a little bit of a dive into the mm-hmm. host of Up and Vanished, Neil Strauss. Do you know who he yes. is? Before the podcast, no, no, it's very troubling, and you know, okay. this, not to say that. And I'll preface before I say who he is before the podcast. I'm sure many people already knew. I'm just not good with names. I still think that the podcast was great. And I still think that both seasons do a good thing. And I do feel like the Uh stories are, for the most part, fair and balanced. And I do think that, overall, the podcasts are a good thing. But I now see what you're talking about and all the self-serving stuff. And Mm -hmm. he is the author of that book, The Game, from back in like the early 2000s. Where he puts yes. himself in the pickup artist world with mystery. Yes. And not, uh-huh. and so I started looking into that. And he didn't only, like, go into the world and do an expose and write a book. He became, like, one of them. And yes. I didn't read the book, of course. Um, I've seen a couple episodes of that show they had on VH1 back in the day, the pickup artist show. Uh-huh. And I remember what they were like. Yeah, um, so all this is to say is that he's that guy, and he became, like, a sex addict after that. He's responsible for a lot of the mainstream, f- like, focus on that world, and he's responsible for yeah. popularizing terms like sarging and negging and all of these terrible, terrible oh, things. God. And I just, I know he's trying to, I've read many articles, you know, over the years, it's been a long time, and you've done the rehab and blah, 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 trying to do good, trying to make good... That's all well and good, but yeah, even with all that, I still can hear like him in the podcast being like, "Yeah, this podcast, my marriage didn't survive it," like sort of implying that it had something to do with that. And then, yeah, yeah, very disappointing. Yep. But I just wanted to give you <sighs> some big credit on on picking up on something that I I now I can see it now.
0: Thank you. I feel very vindicated.
1: So, well, listeners, a good show. now you know. Still a good show. Still a good yeah. storyteller. Um, and just focus on the on the victims and the people involved in the show more than than him, and and get what you can out of it. But yeah, what a shame. Yeah. Anywho, let's talk about Should podcasters. We do our who, episode. Yeah, let's talk about podcasters who don't who don't write books on how to um, be predatory to women. Yeah, let's do that.
0: <laughs> well. This is Season 3, Episode 3, and it, I'm the recapper this time, and the Law & Order episode for this episode is called Forgiveness.
1: Forgiveness. Now.
0: from <laughs> Hamilton. The op- The opening scene... I'm not going to acknowledge that. I'm not... I'm disengaging. The opening scene... Tells us that apparently there has been a clearance sale on scrunchies because every single woman in this opening scene, which is like a party, every single one of them is wearing like 12 scrunchies.
1: It is so good. In our Fashion court episode, many of these girls were featured.
0: Yes, this is Scrunch Fest 1992. <laughs> and I thought it was like a bachelorette party or something. And maybe it is, but it's not relevant, whatever. But this has this scene has some of the worst acting i've ever seen in my life and you mentioned this because we hadn't i hadn't seen it by the time that we recorded the fashion court episode about these women's looks but it is just atrocious acting unbelievable like they're supposed to be like partying and having a good time but it's like they all i don't know walked out of a ohio fashion mall and decided that these were the right women to portray like 19 year old new york go-getter women
1: yes and they were all they were all varied ages very obviously but they're all supposed to be presented as they're the same age there's one girl in the room that i thought was like the the mom almost for a second yes yes (laughs) and the acting and the writing for them is like someone does not know how a girl in her 20s or 30s speaks and has never Spoken to
0: one No never (laughs) So we cut to that party's happening Two of the women like walk out the door Blah blah and then we cut to another Scene where a man and a woman are Leaving like some apartment building And they're arguing about family And they're having the very law and order Style conversation which is like A fight about nothing Mm -hmm. (sighs) Because this the dialogue Which I wrote down I'm gonna read it right now Does not it doesn't make any sense. So she walks out of the apartment building. It's a man and a woman. She says, if we put her in a hotel, she'll feel rejected. And the man says, she's felt rejected since the day she was born. What? 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 Who are you putting in a hotel that would feel rejected? Uh, and now she's felt rejected. It's, it's nonsense. But these these are just like minor characters who like they're walking along and one woman goes like, is that a girl like laying asleep on the ground? And the man is like, leave her alone. It's probably nothing. She's probably, she's just resting. And the woman walks over and kind of like touches her shoulder. And it's very one of those, like the body rolls over and you should be screaming because like half of her head is like missing. She's drenched in blood. And the woman's reaction is, (laughs) I'm going to try to do it in the exact tone. Oh god. (laughs) Like she dropped a pen or something. No scream Yes. Oh god. Uh, I this episode was just a gem from minute one. Had this
1: scene happened at the very beginning of the episode, I would have gotten my first opening with a couple in an intense
0: conversation. Damn. Oh true. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Okay. So Logan and Soretta arrive at the scene, and it (laughs) was. I thought at first this was like a gunshot wound based on how what her head looked like. But it turns out it was a lead pipe because apparently, and they literally say lead pipe because apparently this episode was inspired by Clue. (laughs) And Logan wonders, like, why wasn't the murder weapon disposed of? Like, why did they just leave it at the scene? That's very strange. And they get the name of the woman who's been killed, and her name is Beth milgram and i I don't she's one of the women who was at the party. I can't remember how I know that, but she was one of the women at the party number one this at this party they had like a Polaroid camera, so she has a bunch of Polaroids from the night of the party where those like crazy kids were hanging out, and we find out that she was killed after leaving the party, so we Get the title sequence. And it's been a moment since you and I got to catch up with each other. So I choreographed an interpretive dance that is meant to demonstrate how much I miss you and I will perform that for you now.
1: Can't wait. Impressive, right? So good.
0: (laughs) Wow, I'm I'm in tears. Yeah, I mean it's very emotional and heartfelt. So I spent a lot of time on it. Tens across the board. Tens across the board. (laughs) Thank you. All right, we're back, and we're at the police station, and Captain Cragen is talking with Logan and Soretta, and they're kind of trying to figure out what kind of crime this might be, because, I I don't know, she's a dead woman, but they're, like, confused somehow. Of course. That it may be, like, they're trying to figure out if it's a murder. Well, I would say yes to that. (laughs) Grade A detective work on their behalf. So Soretta walks in and says... We got the three girls from the party and we cut to like an interview room with the three women who were at the party with the woman who was killed. And one of them lo- is Clarissa and she is here to explain it all 100%. because she literally looks like Melissa Joan Hart. <laughs> Hair, everything, the whole look, 100% Clarissa. She said, and again, this is one of those moments where it's like not a conversation or not connected anything coherent she says that her friend beth who was murdered was supposed to be leaving for italy today friend number, and they just like pan down the the row of friends and then they like they take turns speaking like a you know seventh, seventh grade play mm-hmm. and friend number two says like i don't know anyone who would want to hurt beth and friend number three says that beth quote comes from a very fine family her father was president of the river club Mm. well excuse the fuck out of me like (laughs) what does that even mean what the fuck is a river club i don't know but it's meant to say mean something about like high status family or something i guess so they go to beth's apartment and her parents are there because they were supposed to be taking her to the airport for her trip to italy her boyfriend was going to come along And Logan and and the dad is, like, shuffling papers on the daughter's desk, and Logan and Saretta are like, um, we might need to look at those, so could you, like, stop touching things? And he's, like, basically points the finger immediately at Beth's boyfriend, Tommy. So Tommy, we find out, is a college student. Um, I think Beth might have been, too. I don't really remember— but they go to his dorm room at Manhattan College, and I have a question. Is that a thing? Yes. Okay. They're looking around. By the way, they're looking around in this dorm room. Nobody but Logan and Seretta is in the dorm room. hmm Which I don't think you're supposed to enter other people's living spaces and just start poking around. Mm-hmm. Maybe they got the permission of the college. I don't know. Maybe that should have a roommate. Maybe they got from... uh, I mean, there's a lot of things they're trying to
1: make us suppose.
0: (laughs) Yes. Well, the roommate walks in and is like, what are you guys doing in my room? And uh, he, by the way, is like the acting equivalent of a hamburger. He's like just there and it's okay, but (laughs) it's not really exciting in any way. So we find out that he's Tommy's roommate he says that Tommy's at the homeless shelter. He volunteers all them all volunteers there all the time, and they say that uh, Beth was murdered. And they're like, he kind of acts shocked, and he's like, they're like, "Are you okay?" And then Tommy says, "Like, oh no, sorry." They ask him about Tommy, the roommate, and he says, "Like, oh, you would suspect him first because he's Mexican and poor," and. Logan is basically like, uh, we didn't know either of those things until now. We just know that he's her boyfriend. (laughs) Uh, So I don't know what Law and Order was trying to do there.
1: For once, it it wasn't
0: their fault. For once, it wasn't their fault. So Logan says Beth's dead. He seems shocked and disappointed. But he tells them Tommy was at the shelter late last night doing community service. And he, quote came in sometime after Letterman, which is (laughs) such a 90s reference, I lost it when that came out. So they go to talk to Tommy, who, (laughs) when they talk to him, he's in like a church-ish type building, some kind of like religious homeless shelter type thing. Mm -hmm. And Tommy is doing his best performance of the Lady Macbeth like out damned spot monologue cuz he's like not making eye contact with anyone and just sort of like eyes glazed <laughs> over as he's like scrubbing his hands with a a dish rag. It's like um, um it's like mommy dearest <laughs> very. Yes, yes. So Um, he says that Beth had talked him out of accompanying her to the airport because she apparently wanted to avoid a scene with her father. And Tommy essentially says that, like, her father's a dick and Mm -hmm. is like, I'm not surprised he thought it was me because he's a dick. He apparently didn't approve of Tommy, presumably because he is from a lower socioeconomic status and he is not white. And... Tommy tells them at this point that he and Beth were engaged and the dad, when he found out about it, hit Beth multiple times. And Tommy says his dad is abusive. It's a, it's a pattern. Yikes. So by the way, this episode, I think is just trying to give us like a million red herrings as to who it could be. And then it like ties up midway through the episode. And then the rest of the episode is pretty fucking dull. So I'm going to very, (laughs) very rapidly. Oh my God. Rapidly go through that. Thank you. My it is seven o'clock on a Friday and I have had a very long hard week. Uh, and so my brain is shutting down. I'm sorry. Okay. That's okay. So they ask Tommy where he was last night, and he says that he was working at the shelter until 1 a.m. and like, oh, ask Father so-and-so. He could verify that I was there. So they go talk to Father So-and-so, and and he says, like, oh, I didn't actually see him, but yeah, he's here most nights super late. So we cut back to the station, and we learn from the medical examiner that there are no full prints on the lead pipe, only partial ones. And they also find a black polyester fiber. And then they have this weird conversation (sighs) where they talk about all of the things that could possibly be made out of polyester fiber, (sighs) And I, again, don't think that's good detective work because that is literally everything on the planet.
1: It was literally... <laughs> everything that's made. It was like a bad 90s stand-up comedian. Like, the the <sighs> examiner guy, he was like... He talks about the polyester fiber, and then he's like, could be a parachute, could be a tarp, could be a jacket, <laughs> And then just like, you mean things made of black polyester?
0: Yeah. yeah. I was like, what is this? Is this like the <laughs> opener for Paula Poundstone? <laughs> That really, it was like a bad stand-up. I think that that extra, or whoever that, you know, man was playing the Emmy, definitely had a vision for stand-up in his life that hopefully <laughs> never came to fruition. For, for everyone's so sake. So on the on Beth's purse, they find the boyfriend's fingerprints, Tommy, uh, but, you know, that doesn't really tell them anything, because they had been dating for a while, and they're like, well, he could have been touching her purse at any point in the relationship. right. But they get a report back at the station that the father and his daughter, so Beth, the Beth's father, had been part of a previous domestic violence report. Uh, Again, we kind of already were getting this storyline of him being an abusive dick. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're like, how could he, why would we suspect the dad? Because they're convinced a father would never kill a daughter, is essentially what they say. Mm -hmm. However... When they search her apartment, they come upon a life insurance policy where the beneficiary is her father. Dun, dun, dun. Mm. So they go talk to the dad, and he's like, that's just an insurance policy. And they're like, okay, cool. Tell us about the domestic violence. And he reluctantly admits to being an asshole when he found out that Tommy and Beth had gotten engaged. But he's like, I didn't kill my daughter. They go and interview the mom. And she says that her husband was just worried about Beth all the time. Um, But she's kind of, she's a little cagey. And Logan and Soretta basically think that um, when they ask her about the dad's whereabouts at the time of the murder, she's like, oh, I don't know, I went to sleep. He was up watching TV, blah, blah. So I think either Logan or Sereta basically says, like, we know that she was hiding that he had gone out the night of Beth's murder. Like they just somehow threw their, cop psychic skills know this to be true Mm -hmm. (laughs) back at the station beth's father and his lawyer barge in demanding to know if the father is a suspect and they are like well where were you that night and he says quote driving around and thinking which wasn't beth murdered at like 1 a.m or something it was late it was like because they were
1: i mean i'm guessing because they were partying Mm -hmm. The girls were supposed to yeah. be partying, so
0: unless they're like lemos
1: <laughs> I would imagine it was
0: late. <laughs> or or if they actually were the age of the actresses they had cast, <sighs> you know, they would be like, All right, well it's 9 30, probably time to wrap it up. Yeah, I gotta get home. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> they asked Beth's dad if he could verify that he was around driving, like, anybody be able to to validate that? And he's like, yes, because I got a speeding ticket at midnight, and they learned that the area he got a speeding ticket in was 80 miles away from the scene of the murder. So he apparently is no longer a suspect at this point. Mm. So they leave, and the police are kind of like, well, what do we do next? And they haven't been able to connect with the fourth woman at the party, so they're like, let's track her down. Okay, they when they go to see her, she says she doesn't know why they're talking to her at all. She was at the party with, when Beth was attacked, so she doesn't know anything and she says that she doesn't want to talk to the police because I'm worried she's worried that they would misinterpret something. Which is fair.
1: Yeah, maybe but
0: that's good advice. when they're like, what do you mean? What, like, misinterpret what? And she tells them that Beth had tried to break up with Tommy, and apparently he didn't take it well. Uh, she talks about how he, like, kept calling and yada, yada, yada. So they're, like, refocusing their sights on Tommy because he doesn't really have an alibi at this point. He has motive and opportunity, So they're they're like, okay, let's see if we can clear his alibi somehow. And so they go to talk to Father So-and-so again. And he says that maybe one of the residents of the homeless shelter would have spotted him. And so then we get this kind of like weird montage of them interviewing houseless people. And they're portraying all of them as like severely mentally unwell Mm -hmm. or uh, unaware or something. But one of them does say, like, oh, yeah, I saw Tommy go into the confessional with the priest at 3 a.m. What priest keeps hours like that? You know, I don't know. I don't work at... (laughs) You don't work at the church? (laughs) (laughs) So they talk to the priest again, and they're like, what was it about this 3 a.m. confession? Tell us about it. And he says that he he can tell them that he took Tommy's confession, but he says he can't be forced to tell them what Tommy confessed to, because I guess that's in the law Mm -hmm. or something. I think it's similar to, like, doctor-patient confidentiality kind of thing. I guess so. Okay. So they go to search Tommy's apartment, and inside they find a bag with polyester lining, and they're like, (gasps) smoking gun, as though there aren't billions of bags with polyester lining. The only one. Just this (laughs) is it? We're smoking gun? We got him. Anyway, the ME confirms, yes, this is polyester fiber, and it does actually match the polyester fiber that they found on the murder weapon. So they Mm. get an arrest warrant. Um, They're able to, like, call a judge who is kind of, like, maybe the scuzzy or, like, easy-to-convince judge to give a warrant, and he gives them a warrant. Mm. And... They go arrest him or they're going to arrest him but Tommy all like shows up to the police station ahead of time to talk with them and they take him into an interrogation room and he starts off by saying that he wants them to know that he loved Beth she was his whole life and she thought or he thought he'd never see her again. But he says that he doesn't remember the night very clearly, but quote, it's all over now and it doesn't matter what happens to me. And then they fade to black, but essentially we're meant to understand that they get a murder confession from him. Right, which was a little strange the way they did that, I thought. I agree entirely. It was very strange. I think the writers and the directors were like, "This we're going to make this a like, very dramatic episode. Like we're aiming for Oscar or Emmy Emmy quality stuff, and they missed, of course. <laughs> the priest. Okay, so we're kind of switching to the order side now because we're with Da Stone, and Stone is meeting with the priest who asks Stone, like, please, please, Tommy down. He did it, of course, but he's a good man, and we can take him into the Brotherhood. Is that the word? i think that's what they say
1: it's like their fraternal brotherhood of okay priests. yes so know, essentially like
0: be- let's let him become a priest and just give him a lesser charge for murder stone is like uh yeah no mm-hmm. that's not how it works we can't just decide to give people uh different charges because we're like okay yeah go be a priest right because they're kind of nice yeah right So Stone and Robinette and Schiff have this discussion about, like, the Old Testament versus the New Testament, and they're making all these analogies to whether the jury will forgive him or not. But because Tommy doesn't really know what happened, they worry that they won't be able to win a Murder 2 case. So we get a a different scene where Beth's dad shows up and wants to know whether Stone is going to plea the case down because he's like, I want to make sure that doesn't happen. I want him to go to jail for a long time. But Stone Stone is like, you know, I have to try the case I have. And their case hits another snag when Tommy's lawyer is able to file a motion to get the bag excluded from evidence because the police had, again, going back to like the judge who gave them the warrant, he was able to argue with another judge that they didn't have probable cause or whatever to get the warrant. So the whole search was questionable. So the confession stays in, but the bag is out. In a meeting with Tommy's lawyer, they try to get Stone to plead down to man two. uh, But Stone says, no. how about man one? And they eventually like the deal falls through and they end up going to trial. On the stand, Beth's father talks about how much he wanted, how much Beth said she wanted to get away from Tommy, that she was interested in other boys, and Tommy was just, like, harassing her, essentially. And they get Dr. Olivet on the stand, and I will say, Dr. Olivet gave a good performance in this scene. She did a pretty good job.
1: Yeah, I generally think she's she's a good actress. I think they just, they write her character (laughs) really terribly sometimes.
0: Yes, and I guess I was thinking of that medical examiner who was really trying to get herself a main role on the episode <laughs> Doc- a couple a couple episodes ago. So Doctor Olivet says that Tommy was capable of intent, like he had the mental faculties to b- intend to kill Beth, and that he was he was very angry. The defense cross-examines her and tries to prove, like, ask questions to kind of, like, trap her and make her admit that he wasn't capable, but she's kind of a badass and is, like, when he's, like, it's true that this, isn't it? And she's, like, wrong. No. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Not correct. That's not right. And it reminded me of that TikTok video of the doctor countering all of the arguments of, like, an (sighs) anti-vax TikToker. So, in a little, like, conflab, the DAs find out that the church had plumbing done recently shortly before beth's murder and tommy had been one of the people working on it so they go rip out the walls of the church to examine the pipes to see if they match the murder weapon and the reason they do this, which seemed ridiculous to me at first, was because they needed to prove whether he had taken the pipe from from the church to the murder scene, because then that would counter his whole thing of, like, not having intent, not knowing what happened, right? Right. It would have shown, like, clarity of mind. So it is a match, but the defense is able to poke some holes in their case because the pipes are like pipes sold all over the place, including a recent construction site that is on the same block as the murder. So that doesn't really help the prosecution's case that much. Mm So, and the defense also brings a psychologist uh, for the defense who kind of controverts Dr. Olivet and provides further evidence for diminished capacity. But Stone is able to, like, pull all of that apart and prove that she really didn't have good evidence for making these claims. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm looking at my note and I'm going to laugh at the end of this. They get Tommy at the stand, on the stand, and the defense takes him kind of through like a lengthy sob story about his past, and in the episode, everyone in the court is bored, and I am also bored. (laughs) Like, they intentionally, like, made this scene to, like, show how, like, drawn out and boring the defense's case was, but all they succeeded in doing was making a boring scene in the episode. (laughs) To try to like it too wasn't, hard. You know, you didn't have the moments where you're like, people making eyeballs at each other like, can you believe this is still going like they just showed an extremely boring scene. Just very dull, 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 dull. Yes. <laughs> so Stone is thinking that they should plead down to man one because he doesn't think he can win this case. And he offers Tommy the deal, but they turn it down and say that they're going to take their chances with the jury. In the closing statements, Tommy in again telling or sorry Tommy's lawyer in again telling Tommy's sob story then repeats a bunch of offensive slurs against people of color kind of talking about all of the awful things that Tommy has been called in his life I'm not sure why we needed that scene mm-hmm. but we then get Stone's closing argument which is very emotional and talks about how Beth isn't here with us and <laughs> It's this very serious, very emotional moment that Law and Order manages to immediately spoil by giving us a close-up of the scrunchie brigade brigade at the back of the courtroom <laughs> and they're like badly crying and I just laughed because it was so ridiculous. It's very babysitters club. So the jury comes <laughs> It's very babysitters club. You're absolutely right so the jury comes back with a verdict of guilty of murder in the second degree and stone and robinette are happy but the priest like makes sex eyes at stone across the courtroom that are meant to be like oh i'm disappointed in you but it's just a weird staring contest Mm -hmm. and on the steps of the courthouse schiff says that stone did a good job getting them to vote past their guilt And Stone says, what guilt? And Schiff says, the guilt we all carry of knowing there's the other America. And then he gets into a fancy town car, and Stone and Robinette are like, uh, hello? And he says, the state pays for it. And then that's the end of the episode. Based on
1: the end of the episode, I get my first ending on the courthouse stairs.
0: You do. Well done. Thank you. I'm excited. Oh, oh my god, Matt. Matt. But listen up, I might have slayed an entire season's worth of guesses with one episode because I said no less than 14 scrunchies, and I honestly think I already hit that. I mean, in this episode alone, you have at least 10. You have at least 10. At least, at least. I'm going to just say I already got that, though. Yay me. Uh, Good luck. I'm going to go back and and count. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: Done.
0: You wrote done. fest and just wrote done, Scrunch fest 1992 <laughs> need i say more also i now i want to te- now i want to design merch with Scrunchfest fest 1992 i'm into it and i think it i i can see it
1: now it's going to yeah. have girls that look like they're either from sweet valley high or the babysitters
0: club or... <laughs> yes 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 yes, yes. <laughs> all right well tell me about the murder okay. or the crime ooh do you have any guesses for for the case Gosh. Okay. Um, dad hates the boyfriend who is a man of color who did in act. Oh my God. Well, it can't be OJ. No, no. Okay. Um, I don't know. I guess OJ was also maybe a couple years later after this. Maybe. What is it? Okay. So this is the story. It's known by
1: two different, I guess, monikers or whatever the word is. So it's the story of Bonnie Garland, the death of Bonnie Garland. It's also known as the Yale murder. However, I don't, I don't think I know this. mm, There have been a couple, there's been another case of a girl being killed. And I think either, I don't know the details of it that happened after this. That's more commonly known as a Yale murder, but this was the first one and there's a book and yada yada. So (laughs) <laughs> I had not heard this story before either, and it's it's it quite frankly, I don't think I've in research been so frustrated and angry and annoyed
0: than I have been reading about this case like the the actual facts of the case or just trying to research it. you mean
1: the facts of the case and then the the way everything is written about the case and okay, just it just was so frustrating. And I remember when I first started looking into it very early on, like, oh, let's just see what the case is. I was like, oh, I'm probably not going to have a lot to go on here, but it's a a good one. Yeah, plenty. Okay. (laughs) So, Bonnie Joan Garland was born in 1957 in Scarsdale, New York. Hmm. She ends up spending most of her childhood, her young childhood years, in Brazil, though. So, her parents moved to Brazil um, with her and...
0: I think her other, I think most of her siblings were born at that point. She's the oldest of four. She, so she was born in Scarsdale, and then the family moved to... Brazil. Brazil. Yes. Okay. Her
1: father gets a job doing some sort of international um, law that brings him that's, to Brazil. That's cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And in 1971, when she's 14 years old, she moves back to the United States with her family, and she attends the Madeira School in Virginia. Okay. The Madeira School is this really exclusive, private, all-girls high school in Virginia. And it's ranked number one in the state and one of 25 best boarding schools in the USA. Still, to this wow. day. Wow. That's, that's from 2018, that data. It's very elite. I've looked it up. It's very, very high-end. It's hard to get into. Best of the best kind of situation. Ritzy, Ritzy. as my grandmother would say. <laughs> exactly. It's, um, so a little bit more... Um, background on Bonnie because it will come into play later on while she lived in Scarsdale, New York with a fair amount of like affluence and wealth her parents were mm-hmm. not like Silver Spoon people by any means okay. so her parents, Paul and Joan Garland they have three other children in their happy family um, Bonnie is the oldest and they had earned everything for themselves they basically built this beautiful life for them and their family from the ground up um Paul, her father, had gone to Yale on a scholarship. And while okay. he was there, he washed dishes and worked in the library to get through. So he worked his way through okay. his whole college career. And Joan, her mother, was the daughter of an apartment superintendent. And she would eventually earn herself a Ph.D. from Columbia and start a practice of her own. Mm-hmm. Paul was known as Griff to his friends and family. I'm not exactly sure why, but that's what they called him and griff? griff yeah okay <laughs> like Scruff right. mcgruff but it's just griff <laughs> okay <laughs> and after graduating uh yale summa cum cum laude he goes to harvard law and earns his degree there practicing corporate law for over 35 years afterwards his family um are uh, he comes from a long line of stone cutters and um people who worked with their hands and he was very proud of this throughout his whole life so that's the kind of background of her family. So even though she was born with a lot of wealth, her family was very south of the earth people to begin with, and they built it up themselves. You know, it wasn't like it was a okay. old-money situation. Gotcha. Okay. So back to Bonnie. Uh, as we said, she was attending the elite Madeira High School, and she did quite well there. She um, came from a very law-focused family, obviously. Both of her parents worked in, mm-hmm. in law. But she, mm-hmm. from whatever I could research about her, was more creative and passionate about, like, the arts and things like that. Okay. So, after high school, she went on to Yale, just like her father did, and at 17 years old, she already spoke four languages, and she was majoring in something to do with music, and I didn't know the exact thing.
0: Did you watch the Beverly, Beverly Hills, Hills episode where Dorit, <gasps> Yes? Dorit is like I speak four languages, and Garcelle says, "Good for Good you." For you. <laughs> God, I love Garcelle so much. If Dorit doesn't come
1: out of this season looking like the like she is terrible to Garcelle, yes, I've terrible. never seen such blatant like abuse of a woman of color. Yes. from a white woman, it's well <laughs> on TV. Cam on Dallas really gave <laughs> is giving her a run for That's her money. True. yeah. Oh, my God. I can't or wait for this Or Ramona. <laughs> oh, you know what? You're right. Maybe just in Beverly Hills. They were usually a little bit yes. more careful. Unbelievable. Yeah. I couldn't even... <laughs> Oof. Yeah, so she was majoring in something musical. Um, she sang in the Yale Glee Club, and she was often a soloist. She sang in the Madrigal Choir and the Battelle Chapel Choir, and she was also in a musical group at school called Proof of the Pudding.
0: Which, God, her friends and parents must have had to go to so many performances. I know, oh my God, for sure.
1: <laughs> I wonder if it was supposed to be proof in the pudding or proof is it proof of the pudding. But hey, you know, I'm not going to criticize their, their band name. It never took off, it seems. <laughs> so. so before all of this involvement, while she was only at school for about two months at this time and she just enrolled... She meets a student named Richard Heron in the early winter of 1974. So she's been at Yale at that point for 2 months. She's just starting to get involved in campus activities. I think they met at some weird a game called bladderball. Um okay. It's, I think it's a Yale thing or maybe like an Ivy League thing. I think it has something to do with like those big inflatable like ball things that you can go inside of and roll around in. I think. Like a big hamster wheel ball? I think so. It's I didn't really look too much into it, but it seems like some kind of novelty sort of commemorative game that they play at Yale. That's like a big deal to them. All right. So Rich they, people stuff. Right, right. <laughs> so after a game of bladder ball at some sort of dance thing to commemorate the game, she meets Richard Heron And this is someone she falls in love with. Um, right away it seems so it's bonnie's first boyfriend ever and you know as most situations like this she becomes very preoccupied with him you know it's early college she's young she's fell in love with somebody or she thinks she has and all that so he by all accounts is reciprocal of all of these feelings as well and bonnie's parents were not pleased when they noticed that her grades had gone from a's and b's to D's and an F by her second term after Ooh. beginning this relationship. Yeah, a really big okay. Yeah, Heron's grades also slipped a bit, but he always described himself to his classmates as a C student in geology and that he was really accepting of it. He would joke around about like, oh, I'm a C student in geology, but geology students don't really care. And, you know, he, was, he wasn't like struggling. He was very happy in the quote-unquote mediocrity of like being a C student in his mind.
0: Yeah, I mean, if it gets you the degree and you're not planning on going to grad school, like who cares? Yeah,
1: he seemed totally fine with it and at this point I think he's a senior when she's a freshman, or he's at least a junior. Richard Heron at the time was twenty years old and he came from Los Angeles, California, originally. He was of Mexican and Irish American or oh he was of Mexican and Irish heritage and he graduated his high school as valedictorian. Where he was also oh. a very popular athlete, and he was on the student council.
0: All of the articles. That's kind of funny to go from, like, valedictorian to, like, I don't really care about my grades. Yeah,
1: I think it turned out to be like a, um, you know, you're a big fish in your small town, and then you go to college, oh. and it's not quite the same gotcha. kind of
0: situation. And he was a student at Yale as well? Yes, he got into Yale, okay.
1: and that's where he was, um, you know, playing bladder ball. Gotcha. <laughs> so um, a lot of the... Articles strangely list his IQ. He had an IQ of 150. I don't know if that's good or not. I'm sure that's great. but And after high school, he earned a full ride to Yale, and he was very involved with the Catholic Church, sports, and in a um, prominent Chicano uh, campout group at Yale, they called it. Okay. So meeting Bonnie, a beautiful redhead, fluent in Spanish with big dreams for the future and having a musical background, which he also was into. He played guitar pretty regularly. For him, this was like the perfect ending to his college career. He finally found the girl. It was kind of all coming to fruition for him. And it was like Mm -hmm. chef's kiss, you know? So he graduates after summer of that year. He had to attend summer sessions to get the degree because his his grades weren't perfect, but he does graduate after that. And then he decides to go to grad school, actually, in Fort Worth, Texas. So big move. Okay. Um, I believe he tried to get into grad school closer by, but he couldn't um, because of his grades. So he settled for Fort Worth, Texas, for now. And he starts going there in the fall of 1975. Just right afterwards. And she is still at Yale. Yeah, she's at that point just finishing her freshman year of Yale.
0: Right. Okay.
1: So his relationship with Bonnie at this time still continues. They decide to try out the long distance thing because they're very into each other. And, you know, they're like, let's give it a go. So over the time of him being in grad school down there, he would write, they would write each other letters. Uh, Richard would write letters more often, but they were writing to each other pretty often and they were on the phone quite a bit. And in his letters, a lot of them are have been made public. Um, he wrote things like, "Bonnie, this, these are some quotes. Bonnie, I'm living every second for you." And one letter said the word "I love you" 125 times. That was the whole letter.
0: Okay. Uh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to get a letter like that. That I mean, wouldn't scare me to shit at well, all. Uh, yeah, that I mean, uh, be a little more creative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And not like the uh things you would expect to read on the inside of walls of a uh like sanitary uh, yeah written in blood backwards,
1: <laughs> yes, so yeah, so he also encourages her in his letters to try to accelerate her studies and try to graduate sooner so they can get married right away and start a life together they she he says that you know if you accelerate your classes, you can graduate in three years instead of four. And at first, she does take on a few extra courses, and as we mentioned, her grades do slip. So they don't get any better when she does this, and it's not making her parents happy. You know, she's at her
0: father's, you know, alma mater. And they'd speak on the phone. And if they're paying for that Yale tuition... They must be real pissed. Yeah. So,
1: and they're very supportive of their daughter and her degree and all of this. Um, She has a really good relationship with them. They speak often and they don't tell her to break up with him, but they urge her to like consider, to consider focusing on her school and not be dating anyone in general. So as they're going on this long distance relationship, Bonnie starts to pull away a little bit. She doesn't feel the same way. I mean, I can't imagine why. Um, She writes to him sometime in 1976, so that would be, you know, he's been at um, grad school for about less than a year at that point. Sometime in that year, early on, she writes to him that she wanted to live a life of, like, a single girl, essentially. She says she Mm -hmm. still has feelings for him, and that, you know, hasn't changed, but she wants to see other people as well um the long distance thing isn't working for her and he doesn't really take it very well he doesn't love that he says you know you know i want you in my life i want to get married still i want you to finish your schooling early and he writes to her that if um if she still feels this way he's going to come out and visit to quote reclaim her okay Mm -hmm. i don't like that (laughs) and then he writes to her my only joy is seeing your picture and thinking of you Oh, and she writes back that he's becoming quote, just a voice on the phone to me.
0: I mean, that's kind of, okay. That's a little harsh. Yes. Yes. (laughs) When somebody is like writing you obsessive, I love you. I love you. I love you. And then just basically being like, you mean nothing to me (laughs) is, is a little harsh, but I will say
1: these are just snippets of the letters and from accounts of people who, who've read these letters, um, they think that she kind of beats around the bush for the most part. Like she is trying to basically let him down easy, but without saying like, I don't want to be with you anymore. And so it's a lot of language like that. The most like blatant sentence would be that one that you're just becoming a voice on the phone to her. And they believe that this is because um, her parents are continually urging her to focus less on her love life and more on her future. And they know she's non-confrontational and she talks to her parents about how she's trying to kind of like let him down easy, but he's not really getting the hint. And yeah. her mother even offers to like intervene for her at one point, And she's like, no, 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 I'll, I'll handle this. So in March of 1975, during while she's writing back and forth with Paul, with Richard, she does decide to introduce her parents to, to Richard who, you know, okay. they're, eager to meet this guy who's taking up all of her time and, you know, causing her grace to slip and see, like, what, you know, did they like him? Yeah. Her parents would describe the meeting as lackluster, and her dad would say Richard was, quote, slovenly in appearance, difficult to talk to, and physically unattractive. Now that well, now that's harsh. That was not mincing any words. <laughs> no, no, that's harsh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, They did have things in common with him. They found, um you know he he is of latinx descent and they spent a good time in brazil um Mm. and her father had a lot of uh bonnie's father had a lot of interest in south american culture and they have a similar background from like coming from working class families and such but they found it really difficult to talk to they thought he was quote fine um, hmm. But they were overall unimpressed, and they didn't see him as someone worthy of throwing away an academic future on. Yeah. In any event, they continue to let their daughter do their own, make her own decisions, and they continue to let her be with him. They just give her their honest feedback throughout the whole process and encourage her to just focus on your studies regardless of what you're doing with any guy. Yeah. So, now, by her third year in Yale, it's now 1977... She finds herself really unable to find happiness at school in general. She's starting to feel depressed, and so she goes to see a psychiatrist um, voluntarily. And she finds that talking to someone really helps her, and she's starting to feel more confident. She's starting to feel like she can assert herself more. She's starting to feel more sure than ever that she wants to be single. And yeah. she expresses this to Richard. Um, as we've said, she's expressed it before, but she continues to express it to him. The letters become more infrequent from her. And she tells Richard that she will be living as a single woman, essentially. Like, she she loves him, but, you know, the long-distance thing isn't working. And she okay. says that she's dating around, and she eventually tells him that she met a senior. And I don't think his name is ever released. But she meets a senior boy that she feels more close to okay um he's a member of the whiffen poofs
0: (gasps) i know the whiffen poofs Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) because of gilmore girls (laughs) (laughs) so that's that's you know and that's singing and that's what she's into you know so yeah it's kind of a, a good match and everyone in her life seems to like him they noticed her spending more time with him and his feelings were definitely mutual for her by his own account and she tells her parents that she finds somebody, that she's dating, and she's happy, and they decide that, you know, that's great, you know, maybe this will pull you away from someone who we think is a bad influence. Mm-hmm. Um, but they tell her, you know, still focus on school, and she tells them, well, actually, you know, I'm, I'm, ever since seeing my psychiatrist, I'm feeling a lot better and more confident, and I'm actually feeling like EL is not for me, or at least not for right now, it's not for me, and she asks if she can withdraw from classes and with her parents' approval she does in spring of nineteen seventy seven, so in her third year before mm. before the spring term um like cutoff date is. Okay. So she withdraws from classes at that time and she decides to move back home for a little bit, um, intending to take summer classes to keep her get her grades back up and then possibly okay. go back to Yale maybe afterwards, but um, you know, she's exploring her Will options. She, yeah. And her parents are happy with that because they do think that she needs a break. So, spring of 1977, before what would have been her senior year, she's, you know, told Richard several times that she's interested in seeing other people, not looking for a fast track to marriage anymore. And the tone of the letters by all those who've read them is really clear, but definitely, like I said, in that, like, let, let him down easy kind of world. It's never a clear, I'm breaking up with you. It's always peppered in with, I still have feelings for you, and things like that. Yeah. This would all change with her last known letter to him, which is essentially letting him know that she's very serious with this guy now, she's starting to date him more seriously, and she is calling things off with Richard before she, you know, commits to this new man in her life. Yeah. She also says she's going to be going to Columbia over the summer to get her grades back up. And Richard says listen, I've just got accepted into grad school at G at George Washington University, so I'll be moving closer, and it's a, a better school, so why don't you, like, give it a chance? And she's like, it's not really about that. Um, yeah. You know, and good for you, and I'm happy for you, but he is not giving up easily, and he says that things were going so well in his life. Um, he had already introduced Bonnie to his parents, and they liked her, and he says... I want to come visit you and try to talk to you in person. I want to see you in person and just give me one more chance to do it. She agrees to see him in person, and he asks if he can come see her at, you know, where she's staying, but it's her parents' house who don't approve of him. So he keeps pushing her more and more to say, just give me one more chance, I have some time off, it's summertime before I have to go, you know, to uh, GWU, and he pushes and she says okay, let me ask my parents. So she talks to her parents and it's right after the 4th of July in 1977. Um, it's like a few days after, I think. And they're like, um, I don't know about that. You know, like, let's just have a clean break. But she says, this is the whole point of it. Like, he's very persistent. I'm going to be assertive. I'm going to tell him this is it. This is, you know, the whole point of this. And so they agree. But only if he sleeps in their guest bedroom, which is on the first floor. And Bonnie's room is... Very far away. We'll get into that in a second. And they say that he can only stay until the 7th, which would be two days and two nights, basically. So he'd arrive on the 5th in the evening, sleep over that night, spend the 6th with her, whatever, and then leave in the morning on the 7th. Okay. So Bonnie's room is on a third floor, kind of. Um, the, The house is essentially two floors, but they call it a... Let's see what the word for it is. A turret room it's called i guess it's like one of those like it's a little towery looking thing on the house yeah you know so it doesn't yeah, yeah, share yeah. any walls like oh anything so she has like a third floor room so it's very far away from richard that's why they're happy with him being on the first floor in the guest room so it's all agreed upon so he comes up stays there and you know the first night isn't is you know you know he gets there he goes to bed i guess it doesn't say anything about the first night on july 6th so the you know first day after he arrives Bonnie and he discuss their relationship, or he and Bonnie discuss their relationship and the future, and she says that it's over. You know, I'm happy for you that you have all these great things. We both have plans for the future in different states. So she says she's been seeing this guy, this other guy steadily for about two months now, and it's getting more serious. And he's, you know, not thrilled about it, but he seems to understand and wishes her well and is sad about it and whatever. He goes to bed around midnight, and Richard finds himself tossing and turning over the breakup in the guest room and the fact that he has to leave in the morning and that, you know, this is it. Like, he, he lost. He came here to get the girl and quote-unquote reclaim her, and he doesn't get her. So he sneaks up to Bonnie's bedroom and enters, finding her fast asleep. Okay. And he says he was looking at—I don't understand this part at all, but it, this is his what he said he was doing— He said he's in her room. She's asleep, and he starts to flip through a Sports Illustrated magazine in the room, just with her asleep. That alone is really terrifying, right? And then he says, "Quote: Sometime while I was flipping pages and looking at Bonnie, it came to me that I had to kill her and then kill myself." Oh my God! He leaves the room and goes back to his room on the first floor grabbing a yellow towel from his suitcase, and then he sneaks to the basement of the Garland home where he takes Paul, Bonnie's father's claw hammer, Mm. wraps it in his yellow towel to conceal it, and then sneaks back upstairs and hides it outside of Bonnie's door first. Okay. He sneaks back into her room to make sure she's still asleep, which she is. He goes back into the hallway grabs the hammer, and bludgeons her with the hammer in her bed, striking her Gee. at least three times in the skull and larynx. Oh, God. This is around 2 a.m. Uh-huh. So from, ed- from the alleged conception of this plan, with the Sports Illustrated and everything, to carrying it out about two hours past. That's how long this whole situation is. Okay. He panics afterwards, according to himself... And it leads him to steal the Garland family car and flee the scene. Mm. He drives over 100 miles to a town called Coxsackie, New York. Mm, I know. (laughs) How could you not? How could you not? (laughs) Thank you. Um, He almost runs out of gas at that point. So he finds a nearby church where he goes inside and tells a priest he just killed his girlfriend. It evidently took him two hours after getting to the church to finally get the courage to confess. And by the time police were notified, it was already after 7 a.m. on July 7th. This is a full five hours after he left the Garland house. Okay. Paul had already left for work. That's Bonnie's father. When the police arrived at the house, she was up in that turret bedroom, so nobody heard a thing. And no one suspected a thing. And she's a grown girl. No one was checking on her to see what time she was waking up in the morning at 7 a.m. Paul had already left for work, as I said. Police arrive at the house, and they find Bonnie in her room, gasping for air and unable to
0: move. Oh my god, she wasn't dead? She was not dead. Jesus fucking Christ. That is the worst part of this whole fucking story. And Joan, her mother, was there
1: to come upon the scene with with <sighs> oh my god. the police. And she says, quote, I thought she was crying. She was on her back, blood all over the place. She was completely naked and uncovered. I thought she had just been beaten. I realized as they carried her out that the sounds were not cries. She was unconscious and gasping for breath. Oh, fuck. Her oh, mother.
0: God. That is a nightmare.
1: Uh, can you imagine?
0: No. Bonnie's rushed to the hospital.
1: She has two emergency surgeries but at 10.38pm that evening of July 7th, 1977 Bonnie is declared dead of a fractured skull and larynx. She was 20 years old. Now, you may notice I said that Richard said his plan was the Romeo and Juliet I had to kill her and kill myself. Right. So what happened? I was waiting for that part. (laughs) Well, he says that on the way in the car, he broke the rearview mirror of the Garland's car, with the intent on using the broken glass from it to die by suicide. But he couldn't bring himself to do it. So when Heron is arrested after this, obviously, and finds out that Bonnie at the time was still alive, here is what he <sighs> here's what he told police. And I'm oh it is graphic a little bit, but I'm not putting okay. it here for shock value at all. I'm just I want listeners to really hear what he actually said not even a full half day after committing this act okay so the police tell him that she was still alive because at the time she was and he says no it can't be she has to be dead i don't believe it and then he said her head split open like a watermelon oh the hammer stuck in and i had to pull it out
0: oh god
1: (laughs) that's what he says to police when they when they tell him that his girlfriend is actually alive. The thing he was, you know, regretting Ugh. and all this. The attack had in fact been so violent that there was blood, brain matter and blood spatter on the ceiling of her room.
0: Oh, God.
1: So, of course, the death of Bonnie is the most tragic part of this whole experience. But what happens afterwards is really what makes me just so frustrated and so uh. ill. Okay. I'm intentionally going to leave out the immense mountain of supportive and glorifying quotes and testimonials of Heron's... All the great things about Heron. Because, really, when you look up this case... I've read 20-something articles. I I listened to two podcasts about this. I watched a couple videos. (sighs) All you see is what a great guy Heron is. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Insane. I've never seen... In all the cases yeah, that we've sa- covered so far, I've never seen so much, like, so much smoke blown up someone's ass in my life. Yeah, he
0: sounds like a real fucking peach. Uh, really,
1: honestly, all every article is just gooey and oozing with Why? what a great, <laughs> with what a great guy this is. So, I'm gonna just leave out most of it because you can find okay. it elsewhere. And, um, I'll include just what's necessary to get the gist of it. And listeners, if you want more, just search Bonnie Garland and, you know, prepare to read about what a sweetheart, the man who killed Mm -hmm. her was. Yeah. And I would argue for anyone saying that this is, you know, giving a biased view of this, that including Mm -hmm. an equal amount of what is remembered about Bonnie through the media as to what is out there about Richard is pretty fair, in my opinion. So... Unfortunately, Bonnie is just an afterthought in most of this. Um, the speed at which the Catholic and Christian community rallied around Heron was pretty staggering, hmm. and he's immediately being treated like the victim in this case. Heron's former Heron's former roommate at college helped arrange a fundraiser, raising over thirty thousand dollars for his bail. And with a month hmm. of being in jail, Heron is released on bail and allowed to go back oh to attending school
0: God. on a fake hand. Oh my god. Wait, why why even go to school at, under a fake name? They
1: don't want him to, you know, have to deal with
0: um oh, public oh, oh, attention like at school. They helped to like Correct. have him use Okay, I thought he like fooled the college and got in oh, with no, a fake name no, or something. No. Okay, the, okay. They supported him
1: and he's allowed to get off on bail less than 30 days after ki- admitting to killing his girlfriend and he gets to go on living his life, go back to school, don't want to interrupt his life. One article wow. says, quote, a nun, Sister Ramona Pena, took pity on Heron and organized his friends from Yale, the Christian brothers in Albany, and the Catholic community to rally around him. A Yale pediatrician put her house up as
0: collateral to get him out on bail. What? hmm I am astonished so far. Mm-hmm. This is v- not what I expected people to do.
1: Mm-hmm. With all of this, Heron was able to retain a New York defense attorney named Jack Littman, who'd never lost a homicide case at this
0: point. Oh, and ha- okay. do you
1: recognize that attorney's name? Say it again. Jack
0: Lippman. No, uh, no, I don't think so. You will. He's not the really performance guy who did the trial by media thing, is he? No, but he's he's. Okay. He is
1: someone who will go on later on to represent Robert Chambers, A.K.A. the Preppy Killer, in the Jennifer Levin okay. trial. Oh,
0: okay. And if you remember That's that it.
1: one, yeah. that defense was very handy, heavy-handed in blaming Jennifer for her own death, focusing on her personal life and trying to say she was into rough sex that went too far. Yeah. So. Oh, charming. Yeah. So this is who he gets pre-pre that. Not much pre that, but. Yeah. In the trial, which will predate. Levins by about 10 years he says that um what's his name again uh richard was not guilty of murder because it was temporary mental defect that drove him to do this and that the moment that he realized he lost bonnie he just snapped
0: i don't think so <laughs> <laughs> do you like how yeah. i'm like no <laughs> i i think what it is the reason that falls apart is because he Went down, got the hammer, like, put it somewhere, like, double-checked, and then went back for it. Like, it's not a heat-of-the-moment thing. It's a calculated process. It was a
1: whole process. It was two hours long, the whole process. And he took all these steps. He even used his own towel. He brought the towel with him downstairs to the basement, fully knowing he was going to pick something up and conceal it in that towel.
0: Yes. Whether it was
1: a hammer or something else. There was no reason. I'm so reason. confused also.
0: Why did he feel the need to conceal it? Everyone was asleep. He just wanted to be extra
1: careful. If he's seen walking, skulking around the house in the night, he's just <sighs> carrying a towel, maybe going to the bathroom, I guess. I don't know. All right. So, and then they also say, the defense is saying that the jury is being, t- oh, sorry, the defense tells the jury that Bonnie, had she just loved him back, she'd be alive. Not in those words, but that's essentially the defense. It's, it's Bonnie's mm-hmm. fault. Okay. Everyone Bonnie dates is listed as a, quote, affair. Oh my god. Every attempt she goes through to make Heron get let down easy is, quoted,
0: leading him on. This feels like a trial that occurred in, like, 1892, you would think not so. 1992. You would
1: think so. All of the focus on Heron is him being from meager beginnings. He's a Mexican-American at Yale. He was... It was too oppressive of an environment for him. It was isolating to him for years. He never fit in with Bonnie's world, which was painted through this like debutante living mm, yeah. like as though she'd been sheltered her whole life and had this first bit of freedom and just, you know, clueless about the world, N- not mentioning she's fluent in four languages, lived in Brazil, was popular. Her courage and bravery and getting help with her mental. Health with her mental health is looked at as instability. Of course, every article <sighs> talks about her gaining weight and presumes Ugh. that she was lovesick over him, and that oh, okay. it, it's just like c- every article I read talks about her gaining weight throughout the process. Like that has anything as though that's to do anyway. Relevant. With anything. Yeah. Oh my god. Okay. So the oh my god. So the the most accessible article you'll find for this case. It's really, it's from the New York, New York Times, it's painful to read. The first okay. four or five paragraphs praise Heron like he's about to receive an award. And when Bonnie <sighs> is first mentioned afterwards, it lists, it starts off by saying, Bonnie loved Richard because blank. And it goes in listing all the reasons Bonnie loved Richard. That's how he introduced Bonnie into this article. Wow. <laughs> Presuming all these ways that she would love him. And it says how yeah. sheltered she was. But let's as I said, Bonnie's lived in two countries, was popular in school, had excellent relationships with her silva- siblings and parents, was socially active, was in all these different choir things, was able to find guys outside of Richard, no problem, had no problem moving on from him, but yeah. now she's sheltered, sheltered. Yeah, yeah. The Garlands were put through the ringer, watching their daughter's false life plastered across the media, and the courtroom... And all the communities rally behind the murderer. Joan recounts that when Heron came to the house, she was so worried that Bonnie would struggle with the nerve to find the endings with him that she wrote a letter and left it in the guest room, which they did find. Heron claims to have not read it before, um, Killing Bonnie. Mm -hmm. It's disputed, but the the letter reads, Discipline yourself for her sake now. This will be the third time her academic career has been at crisis, and you were not helpful the first two times. Please be helpful this time. <sighs> Can you imagine how that must feel, knowing that you as a parent did everything you could to try to support your kid, and even tried to help let this person off, <sighs> and then for all of this to happen anyway? Right. Right. Despite his confession and all of the evidence, after just one month of proceedings, on June eighteenth, nineteen seventy-eight, the jury finds Heron not guilty of murder in the second degree and instead guilty of manslaughter,
0: where he receives a sentence of eight to twenty-five years. That's isn't manslaughter literally supposed to be like accidental? <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's supposed okay. to be you know not premeditated at all.
0: Right, right, no, right. right.
1: So he takes after being put in prison, he takes every attempt to get out. He's denied parole, I think, two times before he's released for good behavior in nineteen ninety-five. Oh my god. So wait, how many years was that? He served seventeen years. Okay. Bonnie was seventeen when she met him. Uh, so okay. he serves the same amount of time Bonnie lived her life not knowing Richard Herron. Right. After a game of bladder ball. This was supposed to be, like, the most transformative years of her life. Going to college and venturing out on her own. Heron, after getting out of uh, jail, moves to Socorro, New Mexico. He works at a mental health foundation as the coordinator for the Safe Community Project there. That's the last I heard of him. The Garlands worked hard to rebuild their lives. They end up suing Heron in civil court. Being awarded, I think, $15,000. Um, I'm sorry, did you just say 15000 Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that's what they... And then they get a little bit extra for pain and suffering. Um, you know, it's not... You can't quantify these things, and that's certainly not enough. Right. All the members of the family begin therapy soon after the incident. Um, they find a lot of peace in their lives the best they can. Both of her parents continue working in law. Joan, as I mentioned before, ends up her own practice. And the couple remained married until they passed on individually in the late 2010s. And I want to end with some quotes by psychiatrist Richard Galen, who's written a book about this case. Um, It's one of the only voices I find through this whole case and through all my research that speaks for Bonnie at all. Okay. His book is called "The Killing of Bonnie Garland: A Question of Justice." Um, there's another book out there that's been around the case. I mentioned it's called "The Yale Murder," that's by uh-huh. Peter Meyer. Um, that one predates this book, and I think it speaks very similar in the, It speaks to similar themes that this book does, um, with a very like-minded voice. So I haven't read it, but um, the reviews are positive. And okay, so psychiatrist Richard Galen speaks out a lot about this case because he is. He wants to reform the way psychiatry is used in the courtroom. And this is a perfect example of why. Because much like the episode, we had a lot of psychiatrists speaking out for Richard Herron and talking about um, what a great person he was and how years of oppression have led him to be isolated and it was all like a pressure cooker and he always felt rejected and he was never going to fit in in Bonnie's pampered life and all this stuff. And, yeah. So he says... Of how Heron was treated, quote, Richard was told by everybody, the girl is dead, now you must learn to forgive yourself. And they leaped with a kind of almost obscene quickness from the crime to forgiveness over the whole concept of penance. And lastly, he speaks about how a jury could have come to this conclusion and the treatment of Bonnie in the courtroom. And he says, quote, the state versus Richard Heron. The state ends up being a big, ugly, unidentifiable thing. Richard Heron is a poor Mexican American boy who went to Yale, felt out of place there, felt inept, and you see him now as a suffering person. Bonnie Garland was really never presented in the courtroom. She died. She was forgotten. She was forgotten by the prosecutor. They never even showed her picture in the courtroom. I'd have made what? Bonnie come hmm hmm He says, I'd have made Bonnie come to life the way poets make ghosts appear at banquets. I'd have given Bonnie the privilege of appearing at her own trial. End quote. And that is wow. all that is there of the tragic murder of Bonnie Garland and the tragic treatment of her afterwards and the gross injustice, in my opinion, of Richard Heron and his very That's, short sentence.
0: Yeah. Wow. Pretty I, that terrible. Is, it's mind boggling, too. Like, I just don't understand how there's so many people still on his side.
1: I think now, looking back, I, I I hope, I I hope it would be looked at differently. There's nothing recent about it. Like there's never been made like a documentary or something more modern about what's happened with her. Like a modern look at her,
0: yeah. her trial
1: and what happened. But I am telling you, I encourage you to try. To, I encourage you to just read. I'll send you which article um, okay. I'm talking about. But it really made my blood boil reading about yeah. how. <laughs> Because every... And I left out a lot of the praise of him because, as I said, yeah. it's completely unnecessary and it really should be about Bonnie, which had yeah. never been about in any of the articles. It's really... I left out a lot of the praise for him, but even if I left yeah. it in, it still doesn't make any sense. It doesn't I'm no. not you're not missing anything. It doesn't make any sense. Like wow. it's all just about him being a member of the church and a good boy for most of his life and why put him in jail when they believe that he did this in one moment and it was just a one time thing and he can still do good in the community? Why prevent him from doing that if, if that's what it that's what it is. Like it's that whole like why ruin this guy's life over this? that's it's like what planet are we on really really so i mean the episode really didn't really didn't stray far from a lot of the it seemed insane yeah (laughs) but it is insane yeah well great job thank you i mean uh, i just feel so terrible for that family and for everything and I, i hope that this was treated in a more appropriate way. I hope that the way this comes off, when people hear it, I hope it honors Bonnie more and pays much less attention to the person who killed her. Um, I did listen to two podcast episodes about this. One was uh, the podcast The Lady of Crime, and the episode Mm -hmm. is The Murderer, Bonnie Garland, which was very, you know, in the same tone of how I feel. Um, Okay. And then there's another podcast called Ivy League Murders, Uh, And this episode was called When Love Becomes Deadly Yells Bonnie Garland and Richard Herron And they did a good job on it as well Of representing Bonnie And being (laughs) disgusted at the way All of this was treated So I would recommend those To people who want to hear more about this um, And want to hear a little bit more Context of how he is Lauded Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah I just hope that anyone who hears this You know remembers Bonnie more. And uh, just real quick, I mentioned this website in a previous episode I used for research. I think it's called like Bonnie's crime blog or Bonnie's life of crime. And oh, her yeah. whole blog is about, you know, focusing on the victims and really like showcasing them. And she has a little page for Bonnie as well, which has a lot of resources where you can read about um, what's happened to her. It has photos of her. She's a beautiful, bright, smiling young girl. You know, she's, just so full of life and yeah you know i'm glad that there are at least some places out there that are honoring her
0: yeah wow well how would you rate the episode then
1: uh the episode for watchability i mean it was ridiculous but it was also entertaining uh <laughs> i'll give it like
0: a i'm going to give it a c for watchability I'm going to give it a D. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, what about how it dealt with stuff? Honestly, I think it did
1: a pretty good job um, for the yeah. most part of, of sticking to some of these facts, like with the whole church supporting him, driving the 80 miles away to the church. Um, yeah. You know, this weird confession in the middle of the night and the priest, the way the priest was, like, oh, don't don't prosecute him. Yeah. That's how all well the articles are. So I'm going right. to honestly
0: give mm-hmm. it an A-. minus. Wow. Okay. I mean, I guess they didn't do anything, like, super horrifically offensive this episode. And so, other than when the prosecutor said a bunch of slurs, but that was an argument for his client? Well, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> I'll give it a B plus, which I might be my highest rating to date. I think it might I be. Like, <laughs> for, the, for the crime. I feel like I... Okay, yeah. I feel like I say that every time when I give it anything above a C. I think you might have given an A to the Malcolm X one. You know what? I think I might have now that you say that. But yeah, this was
1: pretty on. And you know what? I think that moment of all the slurs was just meant to highlight how um, how much focus was put on his background when yeah, they were yeah. doing the trial and saying like how isolated he was. But I you know, think yeah. th- they could
0: have done it a different way. <laughs> yes, agreed. <laughs> Hey, if you're happy and you know it, subscribe to our podcast and write us a review. Leaving a review makes it more likely that someone else will find our podcast.
1: Also, most people try a podcast because a friend recommends it. So if you're enjoying our show, please, please, please tell a friend.
0: Our social media is Ripped Headlines on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our email is RippedHeadlinesPod at gmail.com. We love getting email from you, so feel free to send us email. Yeah, honestly, send us email. And if you know anything about this case, you have have opinions, reach
1: out. We want to hear what you have to say. And if you'd like to learn more about us and find information about our show, maybe newsletters, merch, and our Patreon, which is now available, please check out our website at RippedHeadlinesPod.com.
0: Also, a percentage of our Patreon proceeds, say that five times fast, get donated to the Equal Justice Initiative. So by supporting us, you're also supporting positive change in the world. Thank you so much for listening to Rip from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We'll see you next week, and until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye.